Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Lainey from the Library Love Fest podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're back with another episode of Editors Unedited, and we're joined by an old podcast pro, um, Rachel Kahn, executive editor at Lori Morrow. Hi, Rachel. Hi. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Great. Well, we're very excited to have you back. Um, you always do a really fantastic job, and we're excited to see what you have. So I'm going to throw it to you. So I am thrilled to be here talking with Molly Greeley, who is the author of The Heiress, which is a novel coming out on January 5th. And this is no ordinary novel. This is the revelations of Anne de Berg, who, for those of you who are Jane Austen fans, Anne de Berg is sort of a minor character in Pride and Prejudice. She's who Mr. Darcy was supposed to marry. She is seen only briefly in Pride and Prejudice and as a very sort of sickly, fragile young woman who never really speaks up for herself and has this tremendously overbearing mother, Lady Catherine de Berg, who's one of Austen's like most memorable creations. And the thing that I love about this book, I am absolutely a Janeite. I love Jane Austen. This is a wonderful novel that you don't have to love Jane Austen to love this novel and to want to read The Heiress. To me, it has, um, it sort of shares some similar DNA with books like uh, Sarah Waters' book, Fingersmith and Affinity. It has, it's a little bit like Gentleman Jack, if you enjoyed that miniseries. There's a lot, it says so much about the time and the place in which it's set and about women's lives and how women made space for themselves and lived their lives in an era where really there were very few opportunities for women to speak up or make space. So I just find this to be absolutely delicious. And we're gonna talk a little bit with the author, Molly Greeley. Molly also published with me a very popular novel called The Clergyman's Wife, which is about Charlotte Lucas, one of the other uh, memorable characters in Pride and Prejudice. And one, all of these amazing uh, reviews and attention for the book, because even though it was set in the Jane Austen world, it was about so much more than that. And so at a certain point, Molly and I talked about, okay, what, what would we like to do next? And because this is editors unedited, we can talk a little bit about the, the editor and author relationship. And this was a book that had, I feel like, Everything came together perfectly in the way that Molly and I talked about the idea for this book. And then Molly went out and just delivered the most perfectly executed book that I can't wait for you to read. Um, so I will say hi to Molly, Molly Greeley. Hi, thank you for that wonderful introduction. 
you're welcome. Um, this, this book has been such a delight to work on. Um, Molly, will you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you live and what your background is and how you kind of came to be a writer who's working in this 18th century space? Um, so I live in Traverse City, Michigan, um, with my husband and three kids. And I have, you know, I went to Michigan State University, got a degree in English, didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I loved writing. And it, but Jane Austen, I think it's fascinated me since I was about 10 years old, her books. I, um, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say that the BBC miniseries was my introduction to Jane Austen when I was 10, but then I went out and I read Pride and Prejudice, and then I went out and read all of her other books. And there's just something about, for me, her side characters that are just fascinating because she doesn't always, they don't have, you know, their side characters, they don't always have, um, a lot of uh, depth, I guess, as far as as far as the way she writes them, but there's like hints of things like with Anne, where I'm just intrigued. I was just intrigued by Anne and what was wrong with her? Was anything really wrong with her? Um, and the same with Charlotte, you know, who marries Mr. Collins, who's horrible. And she's kind of dismissed in the book by Elizabeth Bennet as not being, as not making a very good choice. But for me, it kind of felt like in the context of the 19th century, it was more like, what other choice did she have? Um, and I think that so much of these books is about marriage and about you know, women's places in society. But when you get past the fairy tale of the happy, happy ever after that Austin always delivers, um, I just kind of wanted to see what real women's lives might've been like. So let's talk about this book because the the subtitle of it it has a subtitle for a novel is the revelations of Anne de Berg and we kind of came up with that because we feel like not much is known about Anne de Berg and this book really it really does reveal her literally and there are true revelations throughout the book so let's talk about the main one which is we're going to spoil some things here but they're actually not that spoilery what is the main revelation? Well, there are two main revelations. Tell us what they are. I'd say there are two. The The first one is that she's not actually ill, that um, she has been addicted to laudanum, which is a tincture of opium that a lot of people took and were addicted to back then. And she's been addicted to it since she was a baby. Um, and the second one is that she's a lesbian. And um, yeah, those are those are pretty much it. <laughs> right. So here, here when we first meet Anne, we find out very upfront that she was a very fussy baby and she was given what they called soothing syrup, mm -hmm. which was a real thing. Um, this, is, this is well documented and it basically, it does calm your fussy baby really well, but it, it is very addictive and the addiction follows Anne all up through her life. You wanna mm -hmm. talk a little bit about Anne's childhood and how you- Yeah. So she she's given, you know, she's probably colicky, you know, she's just like a regular a baby who who fusses all the time. And so um, she's given this syrup, which was given to infants a lot. And it was both in, you know, the lower classes when the mothers needed to work, it was given to them. And also um, upper classes, nurses were often giving this to children in order to keep them from bothering their parents, basically, or to make their own jobs easier. And so Anne is given the syrup and she um, 
at one point her father, when she's, um, I think it was about 11, 11 years old, her father tries to get her off of it and thinks that maybe there are other ways to cure whatever it is that ails her. But she um, goes through withdrawal and that alarms her mother who thinks she absolutely needs this, this syrup in order to be healthy. And so she just keeps taking it because anytime she tries to get off of it, she goes through withdrawal symptoms and everyone thinks that means that she's sick because the withdrawal symptoms from this could often mimic um, something like tuberculosis or um, like, and uh, it was just, it was just very, very um, difficult for anyone to get off of this without understanding addiction the way that we understand it now. When you were doing the research, what did you find out about people having, because opioid addiction is such a very real problem in our society right now, but it's not a, it's not a new thing. No, not at all. And I was, I was very struck by the parallels between um, addiction then and addiction now. It's just that we understand it better now. And um, then I don't think they even had a word for it, really. They, they talked, you know, there, there are some documents um, that talk about, you know, people feeling like they need it, but the, the word addiction wasn't used. And so when I was looking at it, I actually found myself reading a lot about um, writers at the time, many of whom were addicted to laudanum. Um, it, uh, Thomas De Quincey has a book called, um, I believe it's uh, Confessions of an English Opium Eater, I believe is the title. And it's, um, he goes into a lot of detail about his experience with it. And, you know, he starts, I believe he started using it for stomach pains and then just couldn't seem to get off of it. He, he did um, try to kick the habit at one point and described withdrawal in great detail. Um, but then he went back onto it. And then, you know, there, Wilkie Collins was a well-known opium addict, um, a lot of others. And Bram Stoker, I think. I believe so, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I came across this really fascinating thing that was an anonymous letter that was sent to a magazine, um, a young woman who was addicted to laudanum and her doctor had prescribed it. And she described the effects that it had on her. And I just, I remember reading that and thinking, this sounds exactly like Anderberg. You know, she didn't want to do anything. She couldn't seem to make herself get up and even like greet people. She couldn't, she didn't want to sew. She didn't want to do any of the things that she would normally do. Um, but she managed to get, get off of it. And so she also described the withdrawal symptoms. And basically it was this very anonymous, very angry letter to her doctor saying, why are you doing this to people? Um, and well, the parallels between that and modern day doctors yeah. prescribing things like OxyContin is really, right. yeah. really striking. It really, really is. Um, and, and I guess, you know, the fact that we know better now in theory, although people did know something then, they didn't call it addiction, but there were, that you can find like cartoons that were published um, kind of lampooning these soothing syrups that were given to children. And you know, there were um, opinion pieces in newspapers that I found. Um, the New York Times had a bunch from the 1800s that were just, you know, people saying children are dying and, you know, yet we keep giving this stuff to them. Because um, Anne, Anne is actually quite lucky. She doesn't die. She doesn't overdose. Um, but a lot too many children did because these were very unregulated medicines. So Anne eventually, um, if you when we were talking about, okay, how, how is Anne going to get out of this? Mm. Um, 
she is, after all, an heiress, which is the, the title of the novel. And um, she has kind of a world of opportunity that could await her if she were able to take it. And she has to get out from under her very overprotective mother. And she has to be sort of fully awake to the world. I think one of the things that I liked about the book and the way you describe her addiction is that there is an almost hallucinatory kind of gothic effect to what life is like when you're on opium and everything is a little blurred around the edges. Mm -hmm. So tell us what, what it is that shakes Anne out of it and then how, how does she overcome her addiction? Um, so she has a governess who um, kind of recognizes what is happening with her and uh, says that, you know, she thinks that maybe Anne should try to do without the medicine. That's not enough to to kick it for her. But um, but then, you know, her father dies. She, you know, Darcy throws her over for Elizabeth Bennett. She ends up just kind of in these like in-between years where nothing is happening and... Um, and then she hears about a young boy who has died um, from a, a laudanum overdose and it just strikes her. There's just something about it that strikes her. And um, he's one of the, the visions kind of that she has come to, to her. And I, I got those ideas. A lot of those were from reading about Wilkie Collins and his um, experience with uh, laudanum addiction he described all of these incredibly creepy and gothic sounding um, people who would come to him and like just hallucinations, hallucinations. Yeah. And, um, and so, and I, there are a couple of other um, writers who talked about that too, but his were the most descriptive and just very eerie. And so I, so it was just one of those things where it was enough to make, to scare her kind of into realizing that she is able to, you know, that she, um, needs to try to take control of her life. And so she takes off to her cousin's house because she has a cousin, um, Colonel Fitzwilliam, who's very kind to her. Um, she takes off to London while her mother's away and goes through withdrawal there. And so then she comes out the other side of this. And at this point, she is sort of by Regency standards, not a young woman. She's 28, 29 when she yeah. finally gets sober. Mm -hmm. And she has no experience of the world. And so this is where the, the novel kind of takes a spin and becomes this sort of a belated coming of age yeah. story I, I felt about. Because when we had talked about this, we sort of thought, okay, well, now she's going to be off. Once, she, once she's able to free herself from the addiction, what is the world going to be like for her and who is she going to be in the world? Mm -hmm. And so tell us about what, what happens to Anne and what's the challenge of her kind of coming out in this world when she's been so sheltered her whole life? Um, part of it is, well, part of the challenge is just the, um, almost like a depression, which was something that people described after coming off of, um, even now coming off of op opioids, depression is one of the things that you hear a lot that people go through. And so she has to get through that as well. And it's just this fear of the unknown um, social anxiety. And, but when she starts to make friends and she starts to get out into the world, um, there's just there's just so much more to it than she ever you know was able to experience before. Um, she's able to 
experience, you know, concerts and plays and go to museums and dances. And she's basically living the life that, a, you know, a young woman with lots of money would have lived back then, but just, you know, 10, 15 years after she would have started, um, after she should have started. And so then she finds love. Yes. And tell us, tell us about that because she actually, she has a couple of different, uh, different ways that she could go in her life in terms of she could get, she has suitors because she's wealthy. She could get married. Um, but she really takes control of her life in a way that would have been very surprising. Yeah. So she, I mean, she's so fortunate because she does have a lot of money. She has her own property, which a lot of women, even, even if they were wealthy, they didn't necessarily inherit property. Um, that was unusual. So she has inherited, you know, this grand estate from her father. So she has so many more options than most women had. And she does have suitors, even though she's 29, she has enough money that men still want to marry her. And um, one of them is her um cousin's wife's brother and he you know is very charming and very handsome and um well to do and you know she could choose to marry him and just let him take control of her estate and she wouldn't have to do anything she could just continue to kind of be and not um just to kind of exist but she doesn't choose to do that she chooses um to find, you know, she finds actual love with another woman and a good friend. And instead of marrying someone who would control her estate, she goes back to her estate and takes it back from her mother, um, who has been basically running it ever since her father's death in Anne's name. So tell us about her love affair, because I remember that we sort of talked this through about whether, whether maybe part of the reason I mean, I recall that conversation early on. We were saying, well, you know, part of the reason maybe that she doesn't want to get married or, you know, that she stayed single is maybe she, maybe she's gay, which definitely was a situation for, for many Victorian um, and Regency era women. And they had to decide whether they were going to have like the safe marriage of convenience. Mm -hmm. um, but how did you, did you do background research into what life was like? for lesbian, you know, women of the time and how that all worked? I did. Um, lesbian was not even a word, again, that was no. um, they, they There was no word for it because as far as, it was such a male-centric society that nobody could conceive of the idea of what two women could possibly do together. They, they couldn't be sexual together in, as far as men were concerned because there was no phallus involved. And so um, they it was, women were much more fortunate than men. Men, it was still illegal for men, you know, to be gay. And um, they, men, men were, you know, often put to death or put in stocks and had things thrown at them. It was, it was really, really horrible to be, a, and it's dangerous to be a gay man in that time. But if you were a gay woman, it really was a lot safer, even, even though people might raise their eyebrows at you, there was no law against it because, it in like as far as the law was concerned it didn't happen it didn't exist um so you know women and especially at a time like that women were able to have these close friendships they were encouraged to have these close friendships because they lived in a sphere of their own they didn't you know they didn't have professions they didn't go out into the world in general the way men did and so 
you know, you could have a close friendship with somebody and actually have it be more, but it didn't, it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, seen as a love affair, even if that's what it was. Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, two women living together was a lot more unusual, although it definitely did happen. And there were women, um, there were, th you know, articles in the paper about um, what there was like called husband wives. So they, they called, you know, one woman the wife and one woman the husband wife. And um, so it was something that people talked about but didn't understand. And a lot of people, a men, just chose to think it didn't happen. Like that there was just without them, there could be no love and sex, basically. Um, right. Yeah. I really, I, and I enjoyed the way that we see Anne kind of come to this realization that, that she's in love with this friend and that they can be sexually intimate. Mm -hmm. um, and then she, she's able to make a decision about whether she wants to enter the, the marriage of convenience, which she probably like many gay women, she could have still had the marriage of convenience because she would have been able to have her female friend and spend a great deal of time together. You're right. She would have had a, a very separate existence from her husband anyway, but she chooses not to. And then she decides to take back her control of her estate. So just tell us a little bit about how she goes about doing that. Um, she, re she returns and she, you know, that was honestly one of the harder parts for me to write because Lady Catherine is such a domineering figure and just, she's so um, well known in, you know, the Jane Austen canon. And it was one of those things where I was trying to figure out how you would wrest that place away from her. I mean, Rosings Park was, was hers. And so the only way I could conceive of Anne doing it um, was basically just saying, this is it and throwing her mother out of the house and, there couldn't really, in my mind, be a gentle discussion about it um, with Lady Catherine. So she she comes home and she tells her mother that she's off of Laudanum and that the estate is hers and that, you know, and then she moves her mother to the dower house. Um, and, you know, then she has to learn how to run an estate. So she, but luckily she, you know, like many estates, she um, she has a steward who is able to teach her and, you know, and help her with that. But it's you know she if she had been a if she had been raised with the assumption that she was going to run this estate she would have been learning all of this from childhood but she didn't so she kind of has to learn it very quickly on her own um and i just really like that idea because anne is seen as such a weak character in pride and prejudice i like the idea of her being so much stronger than anyone thinks that she is so when she finally comes to Kind of comes into her own, she winds up living this very full life. So further spoiler alert, she does ultimately wind up living with the woman she loves and, and they, do, they do have this kind of de facto marriage and she chooses not to, um, you know, she chooses not to have a marriage of convenience so she doesn't have children and they live this very happy life. And that's where I think it, that would seem very strange to Jane Austen and to readers of Jane Austen. It, to me, felt like a little bit like a, a 21st century kind of twist on, on you know, women's empowerment and self-actualization. But as you said, like, these things did happen. People, women, can you tell us a, a little bit about that? Women did find ways to live 
somewhat outside the boundaries of, of the normal, like Jane Austen, husband, wife pairing up at the end. They did. I think it was, it was less usual um, for, you know, be, be, just because women's fine, you know, financial well-being was so often dependent completely on men, it was a lot less usual for someone to be able to just say, well, you know what, I'm not going to marry at all. And I'm, I'm just, I'm basically going to live with this, you know, woman as my spouse. Um, and I guess that's why Anne intrigued me so much as far as this storyline goes, because you're right, it is, it is in a lot of ways, a very 21st century happily ever after. But I feel like someone in Anne's position might've been one of the only kinds of people back then who could um, live that way and who could, you know, make the choice to simply not get married because not only did she have money, but she owned her own property. And that just, I mean, that just gives you so much more freedom um, in a world where you can't work. And, um, and if you can't work, you can't earn money. So. It's a nice parallel, I think in some ways with Charlotte Lucas, who doesn't have, doesn't have money. And so she, she sort of marries for security and makes the best of it. And you talked a lot about what goes into that decision and, and kind of the, the joys and sorrows of making that decision. And in this case, we have someone who um, does have a lot of opportunity in the end, but she still has to go out and get it because she's had all of these other things that have made it difficult for her to sort of realize her full happiness and potential. Yeah, exactly. And it was honestly a lot of fun to write Anne's story after, I mean, I, I love Charlotte's story. Um, but it is a lot more about the restrictions that women faced. And with Anne, you know, once she was able to overcome her own, you know, big challenges, um, she really, she had as much of the world open to her as, as could possibly be open to women and at the time. And um, so in Pride and Prejudice, looking at her and just seeing her, you know, sitting there so passively and letting her mother walk all over her and not doing anything with all of the wealth and privilege that she had, um, I felt that like that was frustrating. Um, I kind of wanted to give her the chance to do something with it. Well, I love the way this book turned out. I mean, I think that we, it, I remember us sitting by the pool at the Historical Novel Society <laughs> conference talking, sort of talking it through and you were already doing some of the writing and some of the research, but it just came together so beautifully. And for people who are listening, um, the ending of this book is one of the most beautifully written final chapters that I have ever worked on in my 20 plus year career. It made me cry as I read it because it was so beautiful and it's not sad, sad. It's just the most contemplative and gorgeously realized piece of writing about characters who you really have come to hold very close to your heart. So I, I can't encourage you to read this book enough. It has all of the, the things that you love about period literature and historical literature from this period, but it is truly unique and it's just beautifully, beautifully done. So please read and enjoy. Um, thank you so much, Molly, for having this conversation. I just love revisiting everything about this book. Um, the Heiress, The Revelations of Anne de Berg, comes out on January 5th, and I hope you will all read and enjoy it. And it was a real labor of love with Molly and me.
Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.